I'm Kelly Davis. You're listening to No Way Out, an oral history of Sunburn Hand of the Man. This is episode eight. Time goes way back. Hey, Allison, how are you? Doing all right, Kelly. Uh, are we approaching the end of the road here? Yes, we are. And this is the final episode of the podcast, I think. I imagine there may need to be a couple of follow-ups on down the line, but this is the last proper episode of the series. Yes. Okay. So with that in mind, what do we need to cover for this final episode? Um, I'm curious how the band was feeling about the feedback they were getting, like, were they feeling really validated by it? Like, Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that I heard about from a number of the people that I spoke with. Is there anything else you'd like to hear about in this first segment? I'd love to hear more about how they felt like they were treated in the media. The kind of attention they got seemed to be very impactful on what they did. But I also understand that like sometimes music journalism gets stuff wrong and that like sometimes people feel like fenced in or like up to extremely insulted. So uh, how, where did they, where did they kind of land with it? Yes. Lots of thoughts about the impact of media coverage. A- anything else I should try to cover? I think I'd love to just hear a little bit more about kind of like the overall personalities of people. Um there are parts of so many of these interviews I've heard that like are really funny in kind of expected ways. I think sometimes even, or perhaps especially when things are sometimes a little like dark or sad, it seems like there's still some humor about it. Um, Is that, is that kind of like a mark of the band or is that just, where does that come from? Oh, you're absolutely correct. Humor is a key element, both in the stories that we've heard and just in how this group of people seems to get through life. We've heard the humor spill out across the episodes and the concept also came up more broadly in my conversations. So I can cover that and just, you know, the personalities of the band in general. And that, I think, is a great starting point for this first segment. Before we hear how the band has related to the media coverage they've gotten over the years, I want to start with some bigger picture thoughts. First from Rob Thomas and then John Maloney. Well, uh, for me, I I mean, I was always, uh, from the get-go, having a collectivist approach was important. That it be a a bunch of personalities acting in tandem for something kind of strange and ineffable. But to have people... A bunch of people willing to work together to do something that was very uncommercial. And towards the prospects of doing it, there was no reward you that you would ever expect uh, or a tangible one other than self-satisfaction of enjoying the music and the, the event, you know. I wanted to hear more about what things were like in those earliest years before any of the media coverage. 
I do remember talking. Well, I have vivid memories, and I, I kind of I cherish them, but of talking back, having long telephone conversations with Keith from Nonak, where we'd talk about our music, and we'd acknowledge the fact that it didn't have a name yet. Mm. We were both happy that we were part of a genre that didn't technically exist in the mind of other people. We, we, we knew about it for years. We talked about it before, and eventually, and we're like, you know, what what ended up being called New Weird America or Free Folk or Freak Folk was what it finally got settled on. But I remember just talking to like, yeah, we're doing something. And, you know, it felt uncharted. I mean, obviously, it had a lot of it has a lot in common with music from twenty years before, thirty years before, but but it also felt it somehow felt completely new. Uh, it was important that, you know, we weren't doing something... When we were doing it, to begin with, it was not... There wasn't much else like it, and it was not hip, you know? It was kind of... It made hip people nervous or uncomfortable or angry. Yeah. But it was important. That's what I'd see, like, people banding together to do this... Push this strange thing out. And then when we got attention for it, it made me, ner- it made me nervous. It made me uncomfortable, but it was interesting to be like, wow, I can't believe... It was the last thing I would have expected... In that brief period when we got like the fucking nine on Pitchfork and on the cover, suddenly we're on the cover of The Wire. I'm like, Jesus H. Christ, are you fucking kidding? Yeah. And then to see some of the indie rock dipshits be like, you got a nine on Pitchfork? I was yeah. like, yeah, you fucking did. Yeah. And we don't even care. I was like, I don't even know what Pitchfork is. Like, we didn't know, yeah, yeah, we didn't know what it was at the time. Fuck, yeah. Shit. But I do remember like a couple of ashen faced middle aged indie rock dudes being like, what? <laughs> the fuck are you talking? Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate yeah, it. it. Yeah, I, I, I'll take it. And no, I wasn't that's great. Well, but I was crazy. Yeah, the last thing I ever expected making this stuff was to no slight on pitchfork. Yeah, no, no, or anything. I'm just yeah. telling, you know, just the idea of us getting acclaimed for that vibe. I was like, wow, I didn't see this coming. And so it might seem a little bit alien. You know, you think a band would want to get a lot of press and a lot of attention, a lot of people kind of like noticing what they're doing and it seems like maybe that wasn't exactly what the band was kind of trying to do so i was curious what it was that they were trying to do we weren't trying to do anything yeah we're just trying to keep keep each other well we were trying to keep each other i mean i had you know the psychedelic aspect of it i was doing uh tripping a lot back then and it was very important for me but you know along with uh, a lot of use of psychedelics is a delusions of grandeur (laughs) And, uh, you know, I really did feel at certain points, I was like, yeah, I mean, like, I would, yeah, as much as I say, you know, there was parts of it, like, it felt like a, a revolutionary zealot. You know, like, we can change the world with this shit. Yeah. You know, I was like, I know it, we can change the map of the universe by the way we think and act. <laughs> you yeah. know, that, was, that type of logic. It felt that way. I was, and in that early note, those guys, I had a, a, they were zealots, too, and it was infection. I felt like... Uh, Revolution was in the air in the fucking Bill Clinton era. Like Bill Clinton's getting a blowjob, but I was thinking about rewiring the universe through psychedelic consciousness, you know. And uh, that's how it felt. Uh, but at the same time, I did not expect indie rock people to care about it, or to end up on the cover of magazines or anything like that. Which would, you know, so when that briefly went down, it was kind of mind blowing and shocking. And as a contrarian, like a born contrarian, it made me nervous. But then, uh, but it was, you know, it opened up so many gateways for us just to travel and, and tour and play shows and have people yeah. come to see us. So like, so I'll like, always stand by that. Like, the, you know, the only reason why 
it, it was good is because we could not. I looked at it not as being on the cover of a magazine or right. being handed an award. I looked at it as an opportunity to get the fuck out of here mm-hmm. and go go see some places. You think of if I made Meet a list of all the people yeah. we met that went on to mean so much to us and open other doors. It was uh, magnificent. I know that's all. That's still what it means to me. It's just like yeah. you know, we get okay, cool. This is gonna this article's coming out. That means we should talk to you know. We should talk about going somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because yeah. I don't know. I just I can always see that kind of connection. And there's that balance between Rob and John propelling the band forward. I was curious to hear Chris Corsano's thoughts on the subject as a person who's played both in Sunburn and as a solo artist. He started by naming the inherent limitations of music journalism. And to try and encapsulate the whole thing, and pre- or try and pretend like you're encapsulating the whole thing, is foolish because, yeah, then the, the thing, it's the original thing wouldn't need to exist if you could just write a paragraph or an article and then get every aspect of the band or the music. Um, but you know, I mean, it, people got to find out about stuff and yeah, the, the wire thing with that new weird America, I, yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of, I mean, people just like to grouse about, <laughs> about stuff. So there was grumbling, uh, you know, everyone's, you put something out into the world and people like to have opinions on it. I didn't, I was happy that my friends and myself, you know, and, and Flaherty, whatever, like that article was like. I think helpful to being able to get out and play for people for which for me is is the main thing. Maybe other people have different stuff that that why they do what they do, but I like I like playing shows and so that cover I think helped Sunburn do some shows and then then that's where you go and you fight. It's always a fight for what things mean. And if you're playing the show then at least you're kind of have a a chance of putting forward, you know, your version of the meaning of what Sunburn might be. I asked Chris if he could say more about this. You go and you make a record and you've got all these tapes of jams and live gigs and whatever, and you edit them and you edit out the things that you think are strong and and say something. And I had been going to see Sunburn, not play with them, but just see them. and, And there'd be parts which were super locked in and then there'd be parts that were drifting all around and and super weird which I liked actually both you know like I think if it was if it was only the locked in I still would have liked it but you know like I just the kind of shit I want to listen to which I was listening yeah like a lot of stuff that had no uh, pulse and it was just noise or whatever like that so that's just what I was after so I guess if some uh, of the audience was really more like song based listening then, then yeah um, it's not an easy neat thing it's not a contained thing like a record uh where you know when it's gonna that it's only gonna last for whatever 20 minutes aside and then you can (laughs) take it off but yeah i think i like the semi but not too organized chaos of it um but yeah maybe some people uh didn't but you know fuck it (laughs) that's maybe we we don't play for them but yeah the the number of people out in the world who want songs is maybe greater than the people who are really uh, excited by, like, improvisation. But, you know, oh well. Dave Bohill also discussed navigating that space between the expectations created by the music press 
and what the band did while in performance. We were like super popular with like zine people, you know, people that heard our music. And then once we got over there and were like weirder, it, it was almost like they didn't, they wanted us to be a certain way. And we were fucking so weirder. Like we were authentic. They wanted the weird. We brought the weird. I would revel in the fact that we would just play a show and people would just be like a handful of cl- claps and just like jaws. What the hell just happened? I love that shit. Phil Franklin brought up this interesting point about the different perceptions people have of people who make music. I, it's a funny because people are like, oh, you know, you're famous. You, you go on tour, you put up these records. And I'm like, man, I am so far from fame. Like, you have no idea. And that's exactly the way I would want it to be, you know, because... I would love to have the the money to not have to work a you know regular kind of job and to travel and play music continuously. Um, but I guess that's you know what people think fame is all about. It's like no, you know. And here are Ron Schneiderman's thoughts about the subjective nature of these sorts of perceptions. I always, when I was getting into Sunburn, playing a lot of live shows with Sunburn and all that, and I was talking to people in the audience after these shows, I started really feeling this thing where, like, people really got out of it what they wanted. Like, if people wanted to, to let it out or to feel like they needed to, to, like somebody to show them that or needed, needed to be in a place where people were letting loose, then they were getting that out of it. If people needed to be in a place where people were being... Uh, atonal and they would see that as atonal or or you know self-absorbed jamming or whatever you know it's like if you if you you know it's like again it's the audience it's the show i mean it's like what you what you bring to it is what you get out of it because because i don't think there's really much of an offer of for more than that from sunburn of like not really saying like we're going to bring you it's like we're just showing up and doing what we do and it's like and that's what we want everybody to do has always been my approach you know, it's like, I just want you to bring whatever you want to bring to it. And if it's, if it's you know, if it's this, that's great. If it's like you're, you're upset about something, that's great. You know, it's like, just bring it. Don't, don't hide it, you know? I mean, that's, that's all I could say about why I think it's got that, that strength, I guess. But it took being there for, to talk to people at different, you know, go to this place, you know, go to different places and see what people bring to it, you know? Yeah. yeah but it's like... Um, I'm just going to go play, mm-hmm. thankfully. Yeah. And I appreciate everybody coming to give me an opportunity to do that. And I don't say like, but it's equal responsibility. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, not, yeah. not, there's no hierarchy on that. Allison also asked about the role of humor in Sunburn Hand of the Man. Here's Conrad Capistran, Phil Franklin, and Ron Schneiderman answering this question. Humor is like central to the band. Like first time we play that show is Save Yourself. We play at that store, right? Triple R Records. We go to a bar after, and we're in this bar, and there's like a DJ booth and stuff. And John just goes over to the DJ booth and turns it on. It's like there's, he doesn't ask anyone about this, and he starts doing comedy. And like I'm laughing, and I'm saying like, "Wow, this like the prank level was high." 
Like even that gig that we played was sort of like, there was like a prank humor element to it and that we insisted on playing behind a sheet and being in silhouette, which the only purpose of that was like to mess with people, you know? It's like an artistic device. But humor has been part of it all along. As long as I've known Rob, he's always, it's like, that's the thing I knew about him. Like he was funny, yeah. you know? And John is funny too. But those guys like to make each other laugh. They do. They're serious about the music. That's the thing. They have a sense of humor, but they care about the music. It's not like, it's not a laugh. They're not having a laugh. Oh, for sure. I think a lot of uh, the sort of, you know, silliness gets channeled to something that it, it becomes more serious just the way, it, you know, it sounds on tape later, you know, just some sort of reading or, you know, Sunburn once played like a video of just all these like hockey checks and just like them watching this visual and playing the soundtrack behind it, you know, it just becomes, it just is funny, you know, like, is video of an hour long of just these guys checking each other on the ice. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's serious, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, that sounds, that doesn't sound very good either, but yeah, the band is serious about playing, but, um, <laughs> I'll make a small statement. <laughs> it's as big a joke as life itself. <laughs> I think it's no, I'm just saying it's like, you know, it's it's not um it's like not it's not self important, not self-reflecting, it's not trying to like sway or convince anybody of anything. It's just trying to, to it's just individuals just existing, trying to exist through things and not have any sort of and like and some shit's serious. And then so if it's serious, you gotta make a joke about it. Because then you wanna like take a break from that, you know? And maybe because Everything is so serious. Life needs to be a little bit more of a joke. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe something along those lines. But. There's another aspect of humor that I think is at play in this band. And I'm thinking about the phrase good humor, meaning a generally positive frame of mind. So I want to close this section with one final clip from John Maloney that I think reflects a vitally important part of what's made this band work for all these years. Yeah, definitely. You know, we went we uh, when we were Shit Spangled Banner, like Rich, Rich had Rich and Shit Spangled Banner had like a um, relationship with somebody who was promoting and putting on the Judy Hensky gig at um, House of Blues in Cambridge, and we all went to we went and like we get to meet Judy Hensky, and at the time, all we listened to is like Farewell El Dubron record. That record was on lock on at at the, yeah. at the Lost Space, and uh, yeah, we met with her. She was like amazing, and she's just like you know. If you want, if you're gonna be in this business, the only piece of advice I have for you is be nice to everyone. And I took that to heart. I was like, just be nice to everyone. It was yeah. magical happen. Yeah, yeah. You never know who you're gonna work with in the future. You never know who you're gonna meet. Yeah. You never know who anybody is really. You know. She was like, I was like, wow. I didn't even we didn't even ask for advice, but she just like knew it. We were like eager and like. Excited to meet her, and we're we're in a band, you know. Yeah, that's good. That that is the best advice. Yeah, that was. I mean, that's the best. Like, yeah, that's still it's still the words I go by. Yeah. Like, and I, you know, kind of applied that to most situations, and ninety-nine percent of the situations in my life. And yeah. Judy Hensky, who knew? 
Maybe not, but like, you know, the bands that are nice to people, they end up, you know, having, having a better time, I think. Okay, Allison, there's some of the band's thoughts on how they interact with external perceptions of what they are and also the role humor plays in the band. Did that answer some of your questions? Yeah, I'm always fascinated by how these personalities manage to weave together. I know it always hasn't been like happy rainbow holding hands in the sunshine, but I think it's it seems to like really speak to their character that people like still still value like a degree of lightness in what they do yeah the thing that really stands out to me about their ability to find lightness and humor and camaraderie is they do it without becoming pollyanna-ish it's pretty it's fascinating um i think they accept the darkness of life and laugh about it anyway which is a pretty powerful position to take I guess. I don't know. So uh, what do you think? Have we heard enough from the band at this point? Yeah, I think so. Because I think like we've heard a lot from the band directly. Um, we've heard about some of the press coverage and what media feedback they were getting. Um, but I'd love to hear more about kind of like their peers in the scene, whatever that kind of looks like. I'm sure that that is also like a very wide and amorphous web um but i imagine that like they seem to be such a connected group of people um not just socially but very like they all seem to value like collectivity and community um which maybe that's projecting too much but uh no i think you've got a good read on that yeah so i yeah i guess i'd love to hear from like other people who are around them who can speak to like what what was happening on the ground at the time from somebody who just like doesn't have any stakes in it or has different stakes in it. Yeah, I've spoken with a few people already, but like what kind of people would you want to hear from? You know, like musicians, any fans who have seen this band kind of change throughout the years. I mean, they've played God knows how many shows, so I'm sure that there have been plenty of people who have seen them more than once. <laughs> uh yeah. Okay. Are there any specific questions that I should ask? Yeah. You know, we've talked a lot about like figuring out what the elevator pitch for this band is. Um, what is, you know, with everybody you talked about or with everybody you talked to, like, what is their elevator pitch for how they feel about sunburn hand of the man that sounds great and this will probably take up most of the rest of this episode we can hear these thoughts and then wrap the episode up with some final thoughts from the band As you've heard, I'd already spoken with Byron Coley and Thurston Moore for this podcast, but 
I wanted to hear from more people, and Allison's thoughts gave me some helpful direction. I reached out to a couple people I already knew, and then checked in with John Maloney to see if he had any other suggestions. I sent out emails to a dozen or so people, and I told them they could either pre-record some thoughts about Sunburn, or I could set up a call and talk with them. I asked a simple question. What do you find most compelling about Sunburn Hand of the Man? So in this segment, we'll start with some of the pre-recorded clips that people sent to me, and then we'll transition to hearing from the people that I interviewed. I want to open with a somewhat long clip from Truls Mads. What he sent me was a pretty comprehensive overview of Sunburn and his relationship with the band. Like many others, I learned about Sunburn Hand of the Man from David Keenan's New Weird America article in The Wire in August 2003. I immediately connected with Sunburn's music. So... Being a collector, I started looking for more. That was in the early days of the internet before the convenience of Discogs, so trying to get an overview of Sunburn's output involved a lot of finding people on MySpace and writing messages and and emails and so forth. I bought some CDRs off of uh, Ron Snyderman, and then I returned and bought some more, and then some more. His wife and him came to visit me in December 2006, and I put on a show where he could jam with like-minded Danish artists. I then visited him in Brattleboro, Vermont, the next summer, where he was kind enough to return the favor and put on a two-day festival, a festival of endless gratitude. That became, especially in hindsight, a somewhat life-altering event. Because what I realized was that while Sunburn's music is great in its own right, what I was really connecting with on a deeper level was um, a philosophy. That doesn't quite describe it, but I don't know how else to put it. A way of life, or at least an approach to being a musician, maybe. Ron Snyderman once said that playing music should be like walking down the street. That captures it better. If there's one thing Sunburnt isn't, it's contrived. I think I was growing tired of reading about bands in Pitchfork, and going to a show in a semi-big venue, buying their records and so forth. It increasingly felt like music had become productified, and that I was the consumer. I don't want to sound all Marxist, but there's, there's an element of re- reification in that. It didn't feel like art, and ultimately I guess it didn't feel real. I realize, of course, that that's a very spoiled take. If Sunburn became wildly popular, they would have to play larger venues too, or play a lot of shows, I suppose, to accommodate that interest. But I won't shy away from this spoiled stance. With Sunburn, the musician is a conduit for channeling everything between meaninglessness, despair and comfort, rather than someone looking to climb onto a pedestal. I went back to the US every year to visit and stay with the Sunburn folks in cohorts from 2007 until I had a kid a few years ago. They became more than a musical fixation, they became cherished friends. Sunburn has, with a few uh, exceptions, been a, a rotating cast. I've even played with them on a few occasions. Someone once labeled them action jazz. I think that's the best shot at capturing their essence in two words that, uh, that I can recall that I've heard, with action being the operational word here. And they are great on record as well, uh, at least some of it. They have 200 plus releases to their name by now, and some of them are bordering the unlistenable. You just have to jump into it. Live they are like a nine-headed hydra, and you never know what, uh, w- which one of the heads you're going to encounter on in any given night. Will it be a focused jam or will it be a stand-up routine? Possibly both. If you're lucky, even at the same time. But all this, that the only constant is in Sunburn is change, is what keeps Sunburn fresh, relevant, and connectable. Here's some art uh, 24 years uh, down the road. Now, if you're interested, we've linked to Trolls' pocket documentary series in the show notes. 
Several of the pre-recorded clips contained a number of interesting overlapping themes, so I spliced them together into a single unit. So here are the voices that you're going to hear. First, we'll hear from David Schwinker. He's a longtime Sunburn fan and avid show taper. Then, Chris Price. He was an early Sunburn fan who was the creator-publisher of Small Flowers Press. This was a zine whose first issue featured over a dozen pages of transcribed interviews with the band from their pre-touring era. He is currently producing the Dread Fool archival series for Corbett vs. Dempsey. Then we'll hear a bit from Adam Langelotti, a musician and sound engineer from Massachusetts. He's a member of Sor Eros and has played with Matt Valentine, Alicia Ambrogio, Kurt Vile, and Sunburn Hand of the Man. He's also done front of house sound for Thurston Moore Group, Dinosaur Jr., and Lee Ronaldo. And the fourth voice you will hear is Jack Callahan. He's also a musician and sound engineer who's recorded under a couple of different monikers. He runs the Bon Me Verlang label, co-curated the Neo Pastiche Changes in American Music Festival, and has done sound engineering and mastering work for artists like Cloud Nothings, Riley Walker, and Thurston Moore. I was drawn to Sunburn initially because the band and their output seemed so mysterious, almost alien. Well, it's deep head music uh, for starters. That that obviously is what drew me in. Uh, they had a sound that you know represented vast exploration of radical underground cultures. And they were communicating musically in that context. What sort of the next layer of thing that fascinated me was the divergent sounds that seemed to be always present. Sunburn has a personal thing for me because growing up in Boston, I saw him a lot. And one day in JP, I see them on the cover of Wire magazine. I'm like, oh shit. Now you could be from out here and get recognition for doing this weird stuff. What blew my mind. I mean, at the time I was 19 years old, maybe. I saw them. I'm speaking primarily about the time. I I saw them about 100 times between 2001 and 2005. This was the sort of the get down period, uh, as Maloney refers to it. Now, I was attending some of their weekly practices when I was interviewing them in 2003 for about a year, which were very similar to gigs. Of course, like all great bands, the best experience is seeing them live. They never play the same thing twice. There's always a freshness and sense of tension, not knowing where the music is heading. I've been lucky to see them live eight or nine times over the years, and I've never seen the same lineup twice, even when I've caught them on back-to-back nights. I feel real fortunate to be asked to play in the group. I'm always so excited when I get a chance to. So besides the fact that Sunburn as a group keeps getting together and keeps doing stuff, and they have been doing this for a number of years, and not to mention John, as well as Ron, their record keeping of the memorabilia the CDRs, tapes, posters, all sorts of stuff. Um, that extensive cataloging is a feat in itself. It could be daunting to find the best entry point, and releases could stylistically seem to be all over the place, but once you recognize there's very much a consistent heartbeat, a creative spark behind the chaos, maintained by the core members of the band, then it begins to click. It almost feels like a secret club, 
with its own language and artistic style, but it's not exclusive. Especially in today's Bandcamp era, the music's out there for anyone who wants to explore. I can make a list of my favorite Sunburn releases, but I couldn't make a list of my least favorite, because it's all interesting on some level, and part of a giant puzzle. So I ended up dropping out of social arts world for a number of years, and got turned back on via Gary War. Ended up moving to Western Mass and working on Soros stuff, I met John. We hit it off and I'm very thankful for the relationship that him and I have, as well as with the other members of Sunburn. John is a very important person in my life for many reasons. He kickstarted my career on a higher level as a sound engineer and he is a very dear friend and uh, I love him. I never saw them discuss anything during a rehearsal, which is very much like a sort of a jam session. Uh, maybe they discussed, you know, which drummer would start and which drummer would come in later. But it began to dawn on me that the people who were casting that divergence in the music grew up tough in like a rough and tumble post-Vietnam concrete austerity world. So Sunburn for me reminds me of what I come from minus all the shit. It kind of is like a full circle for me. So for that, I'm thankful to be in this family. What compels me the most about Sunburned is the band's ability to bring out the most psychotic tendencies, both musically and personally in everyone involved. I'm not sure what is the reason for this. Maybe it's the fact that everyone's known each other for so long, or the fact that they had to live in Boston for so long, or maybe it's some sort of Irish thing. But whatever it is, playing with Sunburn gave me the confidence to make decisions that I would not have normally made, both musically and personally. Throughout the band's time, there's a constant sense of moving things forward, onto the next great idea, onto the next lineup or era of the band, which if you follow them long enough, turns into a mesmerizing journey, almost like any other band I can think of. Just know that, as the band says, there's no way out. These were not pastoral hippies. And outside of being record collectors that I wanted to talk to about private press things, you know, eventually I realized that the lack of discussion in the band at that time was their form of uh, anarchic democracy. And their music was functioning as an audio remapping of lost cultures of psychedelia that they were reporting on from the basement of America. Again, the voices you just heard were Chris Price, David Schwenker, Jack Callahan, and Adam Langelotti. Now, we'll turn to the longer interviews. The first person we'll hear from is the British musician Neil Campbell. Campbell has a massive discography with solo, collaborative, and band entries. Among the many groups that Campbell's played in was the A-Band, who Rob Thomas cites 
as an early influence on Sunburn. He was also in Viber Cathedral Orchestra that we've heard about during this podcast. His current project is Astral Social Club. I opened with my simple question. What do you find compelling about Sunburn Hand of the Man? I don't know. I mean, for, for, for me, they're, they're kind of fellow travelers and friends, really. Um, they're, they're a sort of distant star for me sometimes. I, th- I think it's a physical thing for me. I've got to be in the same space as them, you know? I asked if you could say a bit more about this. I don't know. They're a physical presence for me. Um, and, you know, I come away with their records and CDRs and I bang them on and they're, they're pretty good and I get a sort of feel for it. But for me, it's just being in the same room as them. Thinking back to when I first sort of heard them and I thought, yeah, these 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 are probably kindred spirits. Um, maybe around the time of uh, what would be Jaybird, all those sort of things. And they did sound like this, again, like a distant star. It was like, what's going on there? How many people are on, on this record? You know, it, and it was great and it was intriguing. And then suddenly they land in your town <laughs> and there's 12 of them or something and we have to put them up. And it's like, you know, bloody hell, this is a physical presence, you know. So, yeah, yeah, for me, that's, that's I think, primarily where they, where they work for me it, it is as people, characters, lumps of flesh. <laughs> Yeah, there was something very heartening and we really connected with them, I think, uh, as people. Hal Lambert has his doctorate in communications and wrote his dissertation on collaborative performance. He is a more recent fan of Sunburn. He first discovered them in the early 2010s via Sonic Youth Message Board. Now, Hal grew up in Louisiana, but one summer he decided to visit Massachusetts and plan to see some shows including uh, going to see Sunburn for the first time at the Root Cellar. And, you know, like I had my like ideas because when, you know, you're only like reading about it and, you know, hearing about it secondhand, you know, you don't really know what the scene is like. Like to me, like, you know, this music is like really like vital and important and they should be having like massive audiences, you know. (laughs) But, you know, you like you get to the Root Cellar and it's like friends and family and fans, which is great and it's awesome. There's the whole thing about punk where it's like anyone can do it. You know, all it takes is like belief in yourself and a guitar and like attitude. Um, And I think that's how I felt about um, these like improvisatory or like group consciousness moments that I was hearing in Sunburned or like the weird, like noisy experimental stuff. Um, And then, of course, it's like not everyone can do that. Not anyone can do it right off the bat. That is kind of like a a myth. Um, but I didn't know that. Um, and I was like, I want to like do music too. So Hal started playing music. These days he performs as tentative power, and he also does visuals. Hal created a music video for the Sunburn song Black Lights that's on their Pick a Day to Die album. And Hal did visuals with the band during their set at the Three Lobe Recordings 20th Anniversary Festival. You know, like I had no idea what they were going to do. Um, and like they all come out and they're like sitting on the floor and they're like clapping and like moaning. And, you know, like Shannon has the lizard mask on and, you know, he's kind of like cycling through these like repeated figures that he'll kind of go through. If you listen to like recordings, you know, it's not the first time he's listened, not the first time he's talked about you know, like melted cheese or salad dressing or whatever. But I was like watching them and I'm like, this dude is like 
the like acid like mutant like pig pen of sunburn like and it's not just shannon you know they've had other like vocalists who kind of like go off and like their rant but i was just like really like oh my god because the projector screen was like above the band and i'm looking and these like eyeballs pop up and i'm like oh like that's crazy and all of a sudden like this brain pops up and you know i'm like slowly like grooving in my seat to the music next to like the guys who are like working for the theater and you know on the on the clock and just like that kind of like moment of like synchronicity and i was like wow like just like being able to like participate in this all is just like so like wow the last person for us to meet is ethan miller ethan's the founder of the band howlin rain a band that john maloney played in during their earliest years ethan's also a member of comets on fire a peer band of Sunburn that was formed in 1999 in Santa Cruz, California. I caught up with Ethan by phone, and he told me that by the time he first encountered Sunburn, he felt like they were already fully formed. You know, musically and visually and socially and in location. I think it was 4th of July, and, you know, these guys, like, had dynamite, and they were blowing up, like, old acoustic instruments with real you know, real dynamite, <laughs> like massive explosions and stuff that they'd set up against like some old abandoned school bus or something in the parking lot. Like this was the kind of immediate beer drinking fun that was going on. You know, it was pretty next level. Yeah. And they just, and they had, they, you know, they already just had that sound, you know, something that you couldn't, you, after you'd seen it, you know, you're like, wow, that was amazing. I can't sing anything back or hum anything back or I can't really mimic what that sounded like if I tried to tell you, you know, even though I just saw it. Now, I'm going to pull my voice back and put the comments from these guys plus some more from Thurston Moore in conversation with each other. So, in the following segment, you'll hear from Thurston Moore, then Ethan Miller, Neil Campbell, and Hal Lambert. And I thought they were—I thought they were kind of great. They were just as—they were kind of like no neck without the kind of New York urban kind of like vibe. You know, they seemed—they they seemed a bit more. Um, they they seemed more more Boston, but at the same time, they seemed more kind of less pretentious and more rural maybe and more uh, maybe more uh in, in tune with the aesthetics that were kind of around the western massachusetts scene that was kind of uh developing around that time sometimes you'd see these see sunburn and it might be you know five people kind of with their heads down making music and sometimes you'd see them and there'd be like a dog running around on the stage and, you know, 15 people, someone hanging from the rafters, somebody's, you know, looks like they're going to break the window out of the venue. You know, it's starting to get like, feel like, you know, kind of a dangerous performance, like things are out of control. And some, some of the people kind of look like they're in a trance about to, you know, do something that's going to set the tone of the whole thing, you know, out of control, like the old, you know, punk shows. We had him in Leeds at the Brudenell Social Club. It was like a working men's club. And it's got a beautiful sort of old school British, northern British working men's club stage. And they filled the stage. You know, there was 12 and there two drummers, uh, Franklin and Corsano and Mark Orleans was playing with them. And yeah, it was sort of overwhelming, really. 
Uh, and my friend Vibra Cathedral supported them, and we sort of did our thing, and there was like five of us, you know, and we can get pretty intense and overwhelming, possibly. But theirs was a, a much different and much more, uh, I don't know. I think when we play, we kind of almost disappear physically, whereas they did the opposite. <laughs> and, of course, at the end, there was a kind of stage invasion and we all played together and it was wild and orgiastic. And, yeah. They're like just down-to-earth dudes, which is cool. You know, it's like... It's like what you know. It's like watching like your buddies like make music. Like there's no like posturing or none of that shit. So that's one of the things that I really dug about Sunburn is like all of the like artifice is kind of stripped away, and it's just really about like these people and like their communication and the music that they make. More than just a few times, some of the characters involved certainly seemed, you know, driven by you know the experience of an outlet. There's something about that, like, kind of on the road, you know, dropout beatnik experience that's similar in that it's like, you know, this isn't just a guy or it doesn't feel like a guy that wanted to go and write a book about traveling around America. So he, like, took some time off work. It feels like someone that just was going to go mad or, you know, I don't know, that it just... It was something that he had to do, that he ended up there because that was just where he exploded into. And there definitely is that element in Sunburn, you know, that it felt like, at least at that moment, that they kind of had to be doing it, you know, and it brought a real intensity of performance and sometimes just an intensity of sort of personality or humanity kind of like vibrating up there. And uh, they were more than just being like a Massachusetts version of Nonak. In fact, they weren't that at all. They were just, they were really their own thing. And coming at being in a band together from different angles, uh, different stories, you know, Rob, the record store clerk, who was really, obviously had this really kind of pronounced technique as a bass player and just kind of with a musical kind of intelligence that it was really recognizable when you see him play. Maloney was unleashed. You know, he, you could tell he was some kid who was coming out of punk and metal and just sort of was liberated by this realization of what free improvised music offered him as, as a deliverance, you know, from whatever he, he was coming out of. And that energy was, was, was amazing. You know, Mark's guitar playing was... I knew Mark already from, from some different groups that he had been in, so things were somewhat familial in that way. So and I just remained close to those guys, you know, to the point where Maloney and I would play together quite a bit through the years. And I mean, they, they, they toured Europe pretty, pretty constantly for a good few years, and I think they would just show up at Mick's house and just kind of take all our gear, all our amps and backlines percussion and drums and stuff and load up the va gozzi's van and 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 that was part of the deal which is really nice <laughs> and, and leeds has got such a you know sort of long sort of diy kind of history to it it's a pretty gritty and down-to-earth city and 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 there's there's always from all the time i've lived in leeds and, and around leeds it's been really um you're kind of no bullshit city it's not like london it's not like Manchester, <laughs> you know. <laughs> people help each other. It's a really, it's a really punk city, you know. You know, in the in the best possible way. Um, and and so we've sort of that that that's the environment, you know. Vibra Cathedral and all of us sort of kind of swam in, and so yeah, just collaborative, help help people. 
And and um, I mean, they returned the favour. Um, I think Firebrook Cathedral did some dates in the states. Uh, I didn't go. I'd just become a father. But the rest of them went. Uh, so I don't know, maybe sixteen years ago or something. And and it was the same deal. You know, Firebrook Cathedral turned up with a few bits of kit, and we needed the backline. And you know, the favour was returned. It's it's cool. <laughs> The kind of like narrative about like new weird America, you know, a lot of it has to do with the kind of like generosity of like Byron and like Thurston and Kim being kind of like older, more like established members of the community, like broader, like global music community and kind of like giving a leg up to all these other artists, you know, like releasing their music, letting them open for them promoting them, letting them like crash in like the attic or like whatever it is. And like, you know, they didn't have to do that really. And then like, you know, as a person who is like experienced, like the generosity of, of the band, like seeing how they like pay it forward and like witnessing how they do it. You know, it's what they, they're like avid, like music supporters. Um, and you don't have to do that. You know, you can be very insular. And so I really respect that of them as like kind of just like people in like a, like a digital music community. I got some emails from John Maloney and just like reaching out and saying how he was, uh, you know, he's a major Sonic Youth fan and he was just like really, want, you know, he's like, if you ever, if you ever want to do some gigs together and all this and that and uh, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, and I was like, really kind of nice to hear. I don't think anybody from No Neck Blues Band would have ever written me a letter saying they, they were a, an enthusiast of, you know, or anything. It was just, they were, they were slightly a little too cool for school for that, which, you know, which I thought was also kind of their appeal in a way. But Maloney just sort of was, he was, he was just kind of a sweetheart in his letters. And when I finally sort of saw them and, and we kind of met, we just really got along. We just became really good friends. Yeah. I just think we're, we're sort of open. Um, you know, I'm pretty, you know, whatever I might say about myself, I'm fairly gregarious. And, you know, if I like someone, I I, I, I don't like to hide it. You know, some people are, are like that. And, and and I think they're, they're very much like that as well. I have all their cassettes. My sunburned archive is probably not as replete as some people's because that's almost impossible. You know, they're like the, they're, you know, it's like collecting Allen Ginsberg. It's just like you can't, it's just like... There's always going to be something that you don't have, some C-list item, you know, some CDR of 10 copies that, you know. You know, they had these East Coast Boston accents. That was very foreign to us as West Coasters to meet these young artist people, you know, that were pretty fearsome characters, and a lot of them. And others were very kind of gentle, funky folks. It was just a weird mix, like a real big operation of these crazy characters. There was this guy... You know, this kind of beautiful dude that looked, you know, tanned body, had an eye patch. His name was Critter. He looked like he was right out of the Manson gang at Spawn Ranch, you know. And he'd be up there with no shirt on stage. I can't even remember what he was playing. Yeah, like I said before, you know, some baby's trying to crawl up on stage from a gal that's standing on the side of the stage that's got the kid and the dog's running across the stage. And all these people are, you know, kind of playing. And you're just caught up in this whole thing that does it's just like a crazy american pinwheel swirl they were interesting in a, in a way because they kind of uh they knew records rob is like you know he was some somebody who really knew records and he was able to sort of like like process that knowledge 
into being like a really sort of interesting and singular kind of musician without, you know, here's my Krautrock drone thing I picked up off off of a Noi record and here's here's my beef hardy and kind of playing. No, he's just Rob, you know, and he's just like, it's just really, uh, it's from his heart, but he is a, you know, I love the fact that he's a record store guy. The thing that sort of set them apart from a lot of the other collectives that were doing improvised music that really was fairly uncategorizable beyond that, you know, that didn't really sort of adhere to the historical aspects and factors of, of free improvised music, you know, coming out of like, say like the, European or British lexicon of it, or or even the Zorn U.S. kind of lexicon of that, it was really kind of created amongst itself, you know. That was obvious upon experiencing them. You know, I don't know. They're just like, there's like nothing else in like the world. There's nothing else in the world like listening to like a Sunburn CD and like, you never know like what it's going to be like. You never know like who's playing on it. You never know what it's going to sound like. Is it going to be like punk? Is it going to be like like opium den like psychedelic music is it going to be like someone having like a mental breakdown with like keyboards like toy keyboards going off you know there's like that line about the fall where it's like it's, as long as it's me and like your granny on bongos like it's the fall and you know it's that's not quite true with sunburn because there's there's like the core unit but like seeing the people like the people that come and go and like knowing that it's an element of it it's like knowing that's like, you know, these people are like really expressing themselves in this like group context um, and it all just works. It's something, you know, that's really special to me as well. I, I don't know. So that's something that fascinated me about Sunburn was that, you know, it's on the music is unforgettable and at the same time, um, you know, ind- indescribable. What band has like stayed good for 30 years or almost 30 years and is like still going? And, you know, is like finding like a new audience after like a little period of like dormancy. I don't know. Something about the like tribal element that started it, like their history of these like ritual like performances with these icons and these kind of characters. It's really, you know, it's not like nothing else. John once explained to me that a lot of the nature of what he does and in, and in the context of Sunburn of the Man, it has a lot to do with um, opportunity. And as somebody growing up in like a, a, a fairly challenging locale of, of, of Boston, he said that it was pretty slim of opportunities for a lot of people growing up there. And it was either just sort of like following the footsteps of what the expectations were, the standards of expectations were in that kind of society of just like work a day or getting in trouble, you know, and landing up behind bars or whatever like that. And for him, he said those opportunities were just so distressful and getting involved with music and recognizing yourself as an artist in a place that kind of doesn't really evaluate the, uh, the idea of being an artist. He just like thought like anytime there was an opportunity for them to play, to record, to issue uh, something I always noticed that with John, that he's like, whenever something is happening, he was like, if you need help, I'll be there. You need a drummer? You need somebody You need somebody to do anything. He doesn't um, create a hierarchy with opportunity. For him, it's just like, he just wants to be in the mix. He has a great sense of humor about it. He always calls like, you know, when, when Irish people work with Italian people, he calls that a wet mix. <laughs> <laughs> And I was just like, okay. 
<laughs> Only John Maloney can come up with that one. I thought it was like that's <laughs> the wet mix. You know, maybe maybe part of the thing about Sunburn in one sentence, what's so interesting about them is yes. You know what I mean? If he, it's just yes. You know, and I think that's where John went so right with the thing from the very beginning. Now, I don't know what happens in rehearsals or when who gets to go on what tour. There's got to be some no's and all that. But on stage, it's yes. And that's why you're hearing stories over and over about dogs. Now, this person's on drugs. This person's straight edge. This person's never played the clarinet before but can do it. You know, the audience can get up there. There's no no about it, you know. And I think that in most scenarios, you know, when we're on stage as musicians, we're bound by the edge of the edge of the stage is a no. The audience isn't supposed to get on it. To play these wrong notes is a no. To not have a full enough club is a no. They're, the structure of things, there's, there's so many no's around you and just a few yeses. And when Sunburn's on stage, or in performance, I should say, because the stage is often obsolete, you know, it's a it's a capital Y-E-S. Yes. And I think uh, if it had to boil down to one sentence, it, the, the answer is, you know, what's so fascinating about that is yes. We just heard from Ethan Miller, Thurston Moore, Hal Lambert, and Neil Campbell. There are two more clips I want to play in this segment. The first is another comment from Thurston Moore. There were some magazines, a black and white cover with all of them on the cover. It was a fanzine. And Thurston was referring to the Small Flowers press zine created by Chris Price, who we heard from earlier in this episode. Yes, yeah, that one. And I remember when I remember when that came out, I was that really kind of blew my mind in a good way. Because for me, being in a band and going out, it was always all about the joy of community. Through the 80s, like working with New Alliance or SST and getting involved with Black Flag and Minutemen, to me, it's like I really wanted to be in the fabric of those communities. And it, and it wasn't like... Uh, something I felt like I needed to f- force myself into. It was just like, because I, I so got it and, and loved what they were doing, you know, and I understood sort of like the dynamics of it, you know, as far as like young people creating these like new families outside of their, their blood families and, and creating music and art as an expression, you know, uh, that's how they kind of uh, align themselves so from an early point, I saw that as like, that's the essence of being in a band for me. It's just like to be part of this kind of community that just keeps reaching out to different places, you know. So it's like from New York to L.A., then to the Midwest, and then to Canada. Well, no, I'm not Canada, but then to, uh, <laughs> to Europe. <laughs> and um, so <laughs> I just like, I saw that a lot with sunburn and when that cover of that of fanzine came out and saw all of them just sort of hanging out together there was a there was a real sort of camaraderie a joy of camaraderie there and that to me spoke volumes about like what that band was all about and i and i remember looking at that and thinking that is so cool because it was also completely a weirdly obscure. I was like, I, I kind of got it because I kind of was in there. 
But I, I can think of anybody who would look at that cover and go, who, like, who are the, who the hell are these bozos? But I knew, and I was just like, and I was just like, these are my people, you know. Okay, this is who I, this is who I want to hang out with. That, that was actually right when I met John. Was like, I saw his image on that fanzine cover right when I met him. It was like right when we met, and then his, it's like he jumped off that page. Like you know, his humor was right there, and his his welcoming was right there. And it was just like, so that would, I remember that being a very sort of important moment for me in some kind of like realization of, of of what sunburn was they were just like they were this essence of what i appreciated about being in a group and that was all about sort of this engagement with community and we'll close this section with a final pre-recorded clip sent to me by keith Connolly of the no neck blues band hi kelly my apologies ahead of time for the wartime story style narration employed here Barring the opportunity to be able to sit down in the same room, this is as close as I felt like I could get to the conversation, so I hope it works for you. Thoughts on Sunburn Hand of the Man in relation to the No Neck Blues Band. I probably met Jackie Thomas in 95, though I had prior to that been in the line of fire when Phil Franklin threw a table at the zip code rapist at CBGB's, and also had come into contact with Adam Nodelman, adjacent as he was then to Borbido, Missing Foundation, Crash Worship, etc. By then, hardcore punk had kind of fallen apart, and musically it was a pretty miserable time just above ground, with Cop Shoot Cop on Interscope and shit like the Fugees or Oasis or whatever. I'd say that Nonek and Sunburn reflected the old New York-Boston circuitry that was evident in the Cambridge-Greenwich Village folk days, or with the Velvet Underground or later more DIY hardcore stuff, and though they've morphed and mellowed, I ultimately still think of Sunburn as a Boston band. But by the 90s, everything was kind of tits up, with the construct of the alternative being foisted on us by a lot of morons, and lots of our immediate forebears angling for easy money and careers that tanked. What No Neck and Sunburn shared was a sort of ambivalence or even resistance to all of this, soaked in just enough acid to ensure that none of it would ever be altogether comprehensible. We came to find that there were others, too, ultimately too numerous to mention here, though it did turn out to be something of a regional thing. To borrow from Roy Harper, they are who they think they are. I guess I came to think of Sunburned as the OCBs of the Arthur Magazine set, but you don't have to tell them that. It's strange to think how long ago all this was, and all that's transpired in the intervening time. Maybe not so strange to say that we're all still at it, or at least most of us are anyway. Now if only you could see the things that we've seen with your eyes. Anyhow, this is a little old goddamn thing they call the sunburn hand of the man. It's New England music. We appreciate you all coming by tonight. My name's The Drifter, I'll be your host. We got a long time together if you want it that way. It's gonna be a crazy ride, but I'll talk you through it. Feel a little weird, don't worry. It's like a roller coaster, man. It'll be over sooner or later. Okay, Allison, there are some thoughts that I heard about Sunburn. Was that the kind of thing you were hoping to hear? Yeah, it was. Um, 
yeah, it's fascinating to like see so many different sides of this. It sometimes feels like you have this ornately cut, very weird stone that you just get to turn over and over and over again. And every new facet is like something strange and wonderful. Yeah, I think strange and wonderful are two perfect words to describe Sunburn. And I think we are at the end. I want to give the band the final word. But first, do you have any closing thoughts about the band or this podcast that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think this is something that I have believed in more and more over the years. And I think all of this also adds up to a similar conclusion of, like, regardless of the people you came from, like, it's so important to find the people who believe in you and what you do and who just like really make you excited to engage with the world more and help you do that in different ways and who just are where it always feels like forward momentum and you know I imagine that the people of Sunburn would say it didn't always feel like forward momentum but I think that like when you have something that you share and you're invested in and that you really care about with people you care about then that becomes a completely different part of your life that can bring on rewards that may be far beyond whatever you think you can anticipate will come out of it yeah that's right on i i feel like i've had plenty to say so let's wrap up and close out with this final segment does that sound good to you yeah it's been a been a ride yeah and thank you for joining me on this yeah thank you kelly see you next time We're going to close with some final thoughts from a few of the Sunburn band members, and I'm going to continue staying out of the way. So here are Taylor Richardson, Shannon Ketch, Phil Franklin, Dave Bohill, Michael Kay, Sarah Gibbons, Ron Schneiderman, and Rob Thomas. I'm really thankful to be part of such a significant and sprawling project like Sunburn. You know, I never I never thought I would be part of something like this when I joined the band. I think everything about Sunburned is big. The amount of members, the discography, the ideas, the personalities of the band. And it's always new, it's always fresh. I think the improvisational approach to the music is what keeps us on our toes and keeps it exciting for us and as well as the listeners. So I don't see Sunburn going away anytime soon. I think maybe it's just the beginning. I've been living in Brooklyn before 2000 and I remember this novelist guy that I used to drink with saying, when you move up to uh, Western Mass, you're going to find your people. You're going to find the situation where you can just do your thing because you're not a boxed-in kind of artist. It took a little while, but I remember when I first heard, I believe it was Rare Wood, and I just thought, shit, these guys are dusted. Who the hell are these people? It immediately resonated. The summer, it seemed like it's just all inevitable. This is going to explode wherever it explodes. And 
people are going to take it how they're going to take it and they don't really care they don't really give a fuck you know it's just had this energy of of a of a ne'er-do-well doing well but when i play with sunburn when when we're on stage when we're actually playing a show and it's exciting because you don't really know what's going to happen you might say the last time you played it sounded like this but you really don't know what's going to happen. You don't know if it's going to be some weird poetry with everyone holding chairs over their heads and walking around in a circle. It's it's very much it's so open as to what can happen at a sunburn show. And I think that's why I continue to do it cuz it's never the same thing twice and it's it's always interesting. And I, you know, I just, I love those guys. I love playing with them. I love just hanging out and talking, listening to music. What, what Summer did was like create like a, like a spot for themselves to sound a certain way without any scruples, without any bullshit, without any notes, without any, you know, just like some way to be like not tied to a a genre at all be electronic be fucking noise be whatever be whatever the fuck you want and that's what we did and that's what they continue to do i'm lucky that sunburn's here again for me you know that it's a place for what 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 is it what are we i mean the music because it's the music it's like oh well when john's playing drums and rob's on bass it's like like what what don't you like? Who wouldn't want to like figure out how to play along with these guys? And they're funny and they're like big hearted and and all and it's intelligent, creative, on fire. Just that there's a spark. There's a there's a daring pranksterism. That, you know what? I I recently just got back interested in skateboarding, and there's something about the daring of skateboarding. And you're skateboarding, and you're with your friends, and you're pushing, and everything's going, and it's like sunburn revving up. It's like fucking go. Let's just go. Let's shred. Let's go. Here's a thing. Let's go over this. Oh, I fucked up. I played the wrong note. <laughs> you know, and you just get back on. You keep going. And you've got that same, like, psycho bravery and, and punk prankster attitude. That there's, like, a little something extra that runs through it other than this is just a commercial enterprise, you know, which would be, like, the, the worst version of a band. Or just, like, this is somebody's... Yeah, it's no one. It's not just like one person's thing. It is like a studying of chemical reactions when you get different properties in the S tube and see what happens. Sunburn will always be too messy a thing to neatly locate in a in for any given time. You know, like it just moves around too much. There's just too many records and there's just too many lineups and and God bless it for it because that's that's one in the wind column for Sunburn. I would say is like you know, being a little bit too quick to nail down. I think Sunburned is successful because it allows different characters to come in and out. You know, to be, to be an improv, an improvisational band and to, to not have songs or any sort of structure to your set. That's pretty challenging. I think it's freeing. It's scary. It feels probably really good and satisfying to them in a lot of ways but it's also challenging 
because you don't know what you're going to do. And I think there's always like that pressure maybe, but maybe not. Maybe that's just what I feel. Maybe they are so successful and have been so successful because they genuinely don't give a fuck. And I think that might be closer to it. They're not nervous and they don't, their, their goal is to really just like fall into it and make it happen for every show. And then the records are like completely different animal and they like record them and they chop them up with sessions that they recorded five years ago. And which is just as like freestyle, I guess, in a way, it's just like taking all the thing, all the pieces and like putting them together in a way that makes sense at the time. You can't go backwards. It's like, you can only go, you can only actually be right where you are. Right. (laughs) So, um, I think nostalgia is useful and it has an important place. It definitely connects us to things, helps us understand ourselves. Yeah, I'd say you're right. The band doesn't try to work work on where it was. Uh, the project doesn't seem to seems to be more about where we're at. Yeah. Today. Even tomorrow seems a little bit iffy. <laughs> I mean always ha I mean by, you know, nostalgically. <laughs> Tomorrow's always seemed a bit iffy. <laughs> you know, that's a, maybe that's the nostalgia we, we we look at is how we like who knows. Yeah. Part of the reason or maybe a big part of the reason why we're still together is cuz we've never really been clear about what we're doing with each other. Um but it's but the fact that we still enjoy it is probably the big the big deal that seals the deal for us I, it's it's just yeah, it's really interesting to think i'm 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 kind of stumped it's just a it's just a great question i'm like wow why are we still together and uh because a lot of things like this don't last uh, obviously there's been a it, it has a lot more flexibility than some other projects but the fact that we're um i don't know we found this uh there's something that supports us uh that's kind of tacit, unspoken thing. I think the more we try to get to the root of it, the more uncomfortable we get, and we just sort of leave it alone. We understand that it's there. We know that there's something that binds us beyond just you know friendship and camaraderie and good humor. Yeah, there's some other underlying principle, and it has to do with aesthetics and and uh, and and potentially there's a spiritual aspect that is uh, part of it. But we don't talk about it much, and if we did, we'd probably argue, <laughs> and uh, and uh, we don't want to. I mean, this is uh, something that we all come to to escape the other parts of our lives that we all have to endure. You know, the way that some guys might uh, have a I don't know street hockey or a poker club or something like that in some sense. But in another one, we get to travel with this, and we get to. Uh, edit albums together and and uh and conceive of uh products and uh statements it's it's, it's very interesting but that's a, that is a great question i don't really know why we're still together other than it seems like uh, uh cosmic inertia something like that we just heard from rob thomas ron schneiderman sarah gibbons michael k dave bohill phil franklin and taylor richardson now way back when I visited Northampton to start working on this project, I was sitting around just chatting with several of the members, and they brought up a moment from a recent recording session where 
an impromptu soliloquy from Rob Thomas happened to get captured on tape. They played it for me. It's kind of amazing. And that audio was used in the band's recent release from VHF Records. I'm going to use that track to close out the podcast. But first, here's a final word from John Maloney. I'm just trying to think about what the final word I would say, but I don't... Yeah, it's hard to... What, what does it mean for me? Uh, well, yeah, there really is no final word because we're still working on stuff and we're about to get, I think, as busy as as we've ever been. The vibe is great. It's constantly changing and uh, and and swirling and, uh, and adapting to situations that arise. Uh, we're going on tour on Monday. And it's kind of a bigger, it's like a big, more of a bigger U.S. tour. And we've done, you know, it's like eight, eight to ten shows, but we haven't done anything like this in a long time. And I think, you know, over the past five, six years, we got our feet wet with these kind of small trips, but this one's like two weeks. Everything else has been a week. Certain members of the band can't make it because of family obligations and work obligations. So here we are, like, again, like, put, putting, a, you know, a different team on the field, so to speak. It's more like a baseball, like, the, the starting lineup for this tour is a, is a little bit different, and it's very unique. It's uh, So in my basement last night, we we got together, and it's, it's six people who never played together as a unit. But it's not six people that nobody knows. We all know each other, and everyone has played in the band in other occasions, but the mix is always, you never get the same, it's rare to get the same group of people showing up twice for anything. It's, uh, it's, it's, you know, for lack of a better word, it's kind of loose, loosely organized. It's just always changing and it's always exciting and it's always slightly nerve wracking. And, um, I'm just really grateful that this is what I do. And these are the people that I do it with. Yeah, it's a very uh, family-oriented vibe, which is the most important thing. Year after year, practice session after rehearsal, blood, sweat, tears. The music gets more and more significant. The emotional content is raised to an almost unprecedented level. The intuition, the sheer telepathy of the musicians is staggering. Homeward bound go the notes to the river from where all music flows, the eternal light of all sounds vibrating in harmony and beautiful unison. Together as we witness the most emotional moment of our entire existence transposed and fall in front of us like a melody, like God's capo put on the neck of life itself, the light pours out of our ears and our hearts and our fingertips and the music just undulates and overflows and suddenly spills out into a crescendo that cannot even be described in language as language is presently known. Together, with the utmost integrity, with incredible devotion, with unmitigated <clears throat> sacrifice, <clears throat> the limitless human potential disintegrates into a whole entire new language. God bless us, each one of us, who has sacrificed our life to get to a level of complete and utter transcendental mus musicianship. Here we stand. Together we die on this hill of magical beauty. And to each of you, I, 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 I protest my undying love as we all flow into the one great whole of each other.
forever and ever. So be it. Music! been listening to No Way Out, an oral history of Sunburn Hand of the Man. If you check out the show notes, we've included a list of links to pictures and other things discussed in this episode. We also have a list of the songs used in the episode with links so you can go hear them in their entirety. Thanks to all the members of Sunburn that took the time to talk, email, and otherwise collaborate with me on this project, including Conrad Capistran, Taylor Richardson, Jeremy Pisani, Ron Schneiderman, Shannon Ketch, Sarah Gibbons, Chris Corsano, David Bohill, Phil Franklin, Michael Kay, Rich Pontius, Chad Cooper, Don Harney, Jack Callahan, Adam Langelotti, and Rob Thomas. Thanks also to Byron Coley, Trules Mads, David Schwinker, Chris Price, Hal Lambert, Neil Campbell, Ethan Miller, Keith Connolly, and Thurston Moore. Special thanks to John Maloney, Allison Hussey, Chris Sims, Corey Rayburn, Jason Woodbury, Aaron Kaufman, and Frank Davis for all your support in making this happen. I'm Kelly Davis. I hosted and produced this series. My special guest was Allison Hussey. Editorial support was provided by Chris Sims and Allison Hussey. Portions of this episode were recorded in the studios of WXDU in Durham, North Carolina. Thanks for listening, and as always, remember... It was like there's no sort of beginning or end. The show's still going when you get in the van, you know?